couple of things I want to mention <coughs> announcement wise uh, before we get started so you want to teach the class huh? I'm sure they do yeah. all right well anyways good to have you back David um, should have brought your wife why is everybody say but on your drive home, you can contemplate. I will. You should. You should. Why you didn't bring your wife? Uh, no, I don't think that. I think you probably you locked her in a room. All right. Well, anyway, good to see you. Um, Okay, so we just I just want to mention that volleyball is coming up here pretty soon. I have no details on it yet, but just kind of put that in your mind and in your heart to think about that. Uh, I think there'll be probably within the next couple of weeks we'll have we'll have the details about where the volleyball will be played. It, the last several years has been in peculiar, if you recall. At uh, I think it was at the Methodist Church there. Um, they're still looking for a venue someplace closer. Um, and then last year we didn't have volleyball at all, so um, I don't know what they're doing. But they're planning on that. So just kind of know if you want, if you're into volleyball, uh, well, they are trying to get a team or get a get a season started. Uh, and then uh, next weekend um, is the uh, real life class um, opportunity to clean the church. So um, we're going to try to do that on Friday. Uh, well, I would. That's normally when we try to do it, but. We have obligation on Friday night, so we'll try to squeeze in as much as we can, like at, you know, early Friday afternoon or midday Friday afternoon. Um, I'll send out a text to everybody when we kind of have a better idea of when we'll clean and uh, get that taken care of. We have a pastor's retreat uh, this weekend, so that's part of the conflict on Friday. Um, so that's going on. And then uh, I just want to mention to pray for the Gwaine Arney. Bob Oaken, Bud Crust, and Desiree, uh, and Bob Klein as well. Just mentioned those, those are all members of our class. Uh, we got a chance to spend uh, some time with uh, Gwen and Betty um, here a few days ago, and we just had, a, it was a really good time. Uh, Gwen is doing well. I don't know if you read, everything that's in the, uh, you know, what comes out um, once a week, the prayer list, and the update that, that was in there about what's going on, did anybody miss that? So basically, um, 
there, Gwayne's situation is very, uh, it's, it's a difficult situation for him to go through. They are going to have to remove, and I, I think it's his left. Is it his left or is it right? I don't even remember, but they're going to remove his kidney. Uh, November 5th, I believe, or early November time frame. That was the only time, they, that was the first chance they could get the, this, the, um, the, the surgery team and, and you know, the hospital and everything scheduled because of COVID issues and delays and so on. Uh, so, so he's going to have his kidney removed. He is off of chemo right now. Um, and, uh, and so he definitely covets your prayers and so does Betty. Um, so just kind of keep them in mind. Uh, he's, he's, um, he, I can't think of there's anything else. That's the biggest thing. Um, uh, his, uh, his appetite is sort of coming back, you know, but, uh, basically the stuff that he likes, he just, he just very bitter taste. Uh, he, his stomach, uh, uh, he does vomit a lot, or he had been, um, and uh, and so uh, there's those things going on. So he's losing his, you know, he doesn't have any strength that he can't eat because so he's so all of that's going on. So keep him in mind and pray for Betty as well. And uh, and then um, uh, Julie talked to Desiree last night. Uh, she doesn't know yet what's what the schedule is. Is that right? Basically, she'll, she'll find out more early November her next surgery. Okay, so. She's kind of a pending uh, situation right now, and um, I haven't got an update from Bud or Bob or Bob, two Bobs. So, so that's what's going on with them. And then um, I sent out an, ever, an email to everybody that's in the class. I think I did anyway. Uh, I hope you got it about uh, just if you want to be a part of the harvest party uh, booth, uh, set up a booth, run a booth. So if you do want to do that and you don't know who Chris Cohen or Lauren Cohen is, let me know and I will tell them. Uh, and uh, if you don't have an idea, uh, how many of you, does anybody here want to do that? A couple people? Okay. Good. Um, uh, so uh, they are asking the Bible Fellowship to try to man the booths as much as, as many as possible anyway. So, um, so that would be good if we could uh, have at least one or two booths from this class. So... Keep that in mind. And uh, that's the 23rd, so that's just a couple weekends away. And uh, uh, so just be praying for, for good weather. And then if you want to be a part of going out and inviting people door to door, just dropping off a card, inviting them to the, the harvest party, that's usually how we get a lot of people to come. And we've had, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but you know, I think it's been close to uh, either right up to or pushing over a hundred uh, guests uh, during the harvest party. So people like to come to it. It's a lot of fun. It's a good time um, for the kids and different things going on. So that's everything that's going on for that. Um, and uh, of course, then you got the prayer list that you can keep up on and, and different things. So let's turn over to the book of Psalms, chapter 141. We'll read that and then we'll pray. <coughs> David writes in Psalm 141, starting in verse 1, he says, Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. 
Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not uh, my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the uh, righteous smite me. It, it shall be a kindness, and let them reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil. Who shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear thy, my, my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O God, the Lord, in thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, whilst I with Saul escape. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, especially as we open up. Uh, Lord, we just we do cry unto thee when we pray. We do ask, Lord, that you would make haste unto, uh, unto the response of our prayers. Lord, give ear to what we cry uh, when we do cry unto you, Lord. We ask, uh, we do know that you're a, a God that answers prayer, and we trust in that all the time, Lord. Sometimes we want our, our answers quicker. Uh, then you uh, are ready to to respond to, but Lord, we do pray, uh, and uh, and we ask Father that uh, that our prayers would be as a sweet smelling uh, savor to you, and as we lift up our hands, Lord, and the uh, Lord, that you would uh, hear our our cries to you, and we just praise you and thank you, Lord. We do want to mention uh, the Arnies, and uh, we do pray for Gwen, Lord, the things that are going on with him, all of the the. Um, the situation that he has, pending surgery and and uh, and the cancer and the chemo and all of those things, Lord. I, I do pray for him, Lord, and I just ask the Lord that you would move in his life. You would accomplish great things that you might be uh, declared uh, holy and righteous and, and uh, a God that we can trust in. And we do praise you for all of that in Jesus' name. Sovereign, you know everything that's going to take place. And we just ask that you 
Father, to con- conclude in prayer, we're just thankful, Lord, that again, that we can come before the the, uh, the the King of the universe, Lord, the God of all gods, and we can pray to you, and we can know that you hear our prayer. We do ask again, Lord, that you would just uh, be with us this morning as we uh, study your word. Help us to see the passage, Lord, in a way that maybe we've never seen it before, things that uh, uh, that you would bring, bring out uh, in our own hearts. Maybe not said, but uh, the, the Spirit of God, as, as we know, Lord, is our teacher. And, uh, and sometimes you teach things that are to each, each one of us individually that may not be said. And so we praise you for that. We ask now, Lord, that you would bless the day. Pray for Brian as he uh, preaches the main service. Lord, just use him in accordance to your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're still, we're still working our way through the, uh, the letter that Paul had written there. And so... I just kind of want to give a just a pass overview real quick where we're where we've been what we're what we're at right now. It's interesting, you know how I don't I don't really make an effort uh, to pick a passage to pray uh, this you know for our as we start this the classes each morning. But um, uh, Psalm one forty one very very much kind of parallels at least in my mind parallels what we're going to look at today. There's a lot of things that uh, that David wrote about uh, that uh, are good instruction for us. But anyway, in the first five chapters of the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul Paul has been encouraging us... Julie, by the way, did you send that text to Cheryl? Okay. Um, and so he's been encouraging us by his example. Paul is using his life. That's one of the things about this letter. I mean, there is doctrine here. Don't get me wrong. There is a lot of doctrine here. But this is not a... He didn't write to teach the church. What he wrote was to encourage the church. And he used his own life as, a, as, as an example. The things that he's talking about, he says, now, you can see that in my life. He doesn't say it that way, but, but he uses his own life as an as a example of what he's trying to talk about. So um, he uses that uh, to help us understand. So uh, in order for us to be um, good ministers of the gospel, that's, that's his driving portions, for us to be good ministers of the gospel. And so we, we have seen how his passion to endure helps teach helps them teach in the face of difficulty. Having a passion to accomplish something sometimes gets you through things that you never think you're going to get through. Because if you don't have a passion to accomplishment, you will you will uh, roll over very easily and say, "I'm done." It's very easy. I, I know from my own in my own life it, that happens sometimes where where I get discouraged, and discouragement is the biggest enemy for passion. In fact, they're opposite of each other. Passion and, and discouragement don't go hand in hand. You can't be discouraged and have passion. You can't have passion and be discouraged. It doesn't work that way. At least I don't think it does anyway. Maybe somebody can be... Can, anybody been discouraged and still have passion? It's hard. One overrides the other. I think if you're starting to be discouraged, seek your passion. Remember that passage we talked about a couple of weeks ago I told you about uh, where Paul went back to Troas? I, I can't get past this. I, it's, it's a constant reminder of me that we need to sometimes go back to our Troas to, to regain the passion that we have. Remember that Troas is where Paul heard God calling him, directing him. He, very, he went back to Troas to remind himself of what God is calling him to do in his life. And sometimes we have to go back to the point where we got saved. And just remember, 
you got saved. And that ought to be enough. I mean, you're saved no matter what's happening in your life, you're saved. So anyway, we passed through five chapters. And these five chapters, all they address the church. And so to summarize them real quick, I'm just going to run through this. It doesn't, not in your notes this time. But he offers comfort and purpose for our ministry. So, so we got to be comfort. We got to be comforted because sometimes we think that we're suffering unduly or unnecessarily or, in, or improperly or whatever. But he offers comfort and purpose. He offers to adjust he, a way to adjust our attitudes. And we went through that, especially in the first couple of chapters, just looking at attitudes of the Christian. We talked about those things as well. We talked about forgiveness as one of the key attitudes of being able to forgive. Why should we should forgive? How do we forgive? as a part of the message of the gospel, because forgiveness is part of the message of the gospel. Because you don't get saved until you realize that, you're, that God has forgiven you of your sins when you confess that. He says, I, I, he's, well, I'm sorry, God, I, I ask you forgiveness, please save me, and boom, he does. Because you just confessed uh, an attitude of forgiveness. He talked about, he teaches us about being engaged in service. He started in chapter 1 offering comfort and, and purpose. I think I just mentioned that, I don't know why it's in there twice. Uh, he helps us see open doors as God has led us to serve, and he helps us attend to our role in ministry in the call to bring the knowledge of Christ to the world. So every person in, in, in the body of Christ has a role to play in getting the gospel out. Uh, some, are, some are more um, illustrious or, or big, you know, like missionaries or something, but everybody is responsible for getting the gospel message out. And we talked about that at length already. And he's proved out the significance of God fulfilling his promises. Uh, that's, that really helps us know that, that where we're at is where God wants us to be. And then we understand the reason to be involved in ministry. And that brings us to chapter 6. And so Paul began chapter 6 kind of tying his various points together as we're expected to serve the living God in ministry. Not as a pastor, not as a missionary, just serving. So how the serving will manifest itself in your life is always going to be different than it manifests itself in another person's life, but it's still serving. Uh, and in chapter uh, chapter two, I'm sorry, chapter six, starting in the first couple of verses, we were encouraged. Remember, we talked about he he wrote. He says, uh, "Don't receive the the grace of God in vain." And uh, so we talked about that at length. Um, to execute the grace that we've received as a partner, both in Christ and with other believers. And then in verse 3, he spoke of receiving God's grace as, as, the, as the great, receiving it in holiness. I mean, there's two ways you can receive God's grace. You can receive God's grace in holiness or in vanity, Paul says there in the first couple of verses of 2 Corinthians. Probably should turn over there myself. And then in verse 4, he talks about being, uh, being firm in our ministry, aligning ourselves with the heart, mind, and the work of Christ. And then he wraps up. And we went through 15 characteristics. We didn't deal with them uh, at, at, in depth, but we just covered them. He listed 15 um, characteristics of ministry, what your ministry should be like. And then he gave 12 resources for strengthening your ministry. And then in this final part that we're going to look at now, Paul is going to give us some actions because not only are we responsible for ministry, to serve in ministry, but we're also responsible to protect our ministry, to shield our ministry, and to, to, uh, to make sure 
that is not tarnished in any way. And so in the final part of this chapter, he's given us actions to shield the ministry. Um, and, uh, and so we start with verse 11, which is where we're at. I'm going to read verse 11 to 13. We'll just cover that, what I call being open for others. Uh, so starting in verse 11, he goes on, And such were some... That's First Corinthians, not Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 11. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are straightened in us, but you are, you are not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as, my, as unto my children. Be ye also enlarged. And we'll pause right there for this passage. So being open, Paul's, Paul's encouraging us to be open. He want, he, he's not just a preacher. This is the cool thing about Paul. He's not just a preacher. He's a personal worker in the ministry. Um, he, he's, he's been involved in ministry. He's talking from experience. Uh, which is important for us because, you know, sometimes we want to see we want to see how these these truths actually work out in in, in reality. He didn't roll into town, uh, and he rolled into a lot of towns, but he didn't just roll into town like an evangelist, a traveling evangelist. He didn't. That's not how he came in. Um, he didn't come in following a big publicity announcement that he's going to be preaching at the uh, at the convention center. He, he didn't roll in like that. He didn't come in and preach the gospel and then depart with no connection to the ones that got saved. That's not Paul. You know, big evangelistic events that we have, that we, we're, you know, in our minds, we may be aware of, like, let's say Billy Graham Crusade, for example. So Billy Graham comes into town, he rolls into town, there's been a big announcement that Billy Graham is coming, and everybody flocks to the tent that Billy Graham's going to be at. And I'm not saying anything negative about it, but this is not how Paul did things. Billy Graham comes in, he preaches some messages, gives an invitation to people to come forward. If people do come forward, he has a team out there to work with them. But Billy Graham doesn't get down in there with the people that are getting saved. He has a team to work with, these altar workers, and that's, that's okay. But what Paul does, Paul preaches the gospel, he teaches at the synagogue or wherever he's at, and the people get saved, and then he gets down in amongst them, and he says, let me teach you the Bible now. And that's what Paul did in difference, and that's what Paul wants us to do, is that kind of thing. And that's the experience that Paul had. He, he's, he's, uh, he, he was a preacher, but he was also a worker in the ministry. And so he stayed on after the preaching to invest with the new converts by discipling and training and teaching and being a living epistle as the church was form, being formed. That's Paul. That's how we all should be. And I don't know how every evangelist does their thing, and I'm not trying to pick on an evangelist. I'm just saying that that's not what Paul did. And so he stayed because he loved the way Christ, he, he loved them, the people that got saved. He stayed because of the same way that Christ stayed. And he both wanted them to know that and to know how to love, love in return. So there's an issue of love. So, you know, when some people, they, when they get saved, they finally realize God does love me. I can be open to that. I can receive that. But they don't know how to re take that and turn it around and give it to somebody else. They don't know how to, know how to share that back with somebody else. And Paul's trying to make that happen. He said in Timothy, he told, he told his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an, and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. 
eight, then he goes on. Well, let me take that's a pair of the parentheses. Let's just let's skip the parentheses for just a minute. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So Paul's talking about being, that's what he does. He's a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. So verse 11, at the beginning of verse 11, what Paul says, he says in verse 11, O oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. So what he's saying here, you need as a believer to have an open heart and an open mouth. Uh, not, he's not trying to be you know, negative and you know, open your mouth or anything. But he is one. So just remember what Jesus Christ said in the second part of Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so what, what Christ is saying and what Paul is encouraging is, out of the abundance of your heart, you need to have an enlarged heart, a, a large heart. And you need to have a mouth that's open to communicate what's in your heart to come out of your heart. It comes out in, in your mouth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, so, so we're in chapter 6, but if you look at chapter 7, verse 4, Paul writes, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. That's an open mouth. Great is my glorifying of you, or glorying of you. I am filled, that's his heart, I am filled with comfort, I am exceeding joyful in all of our tribulation. For when we were come unto Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side, where we in fightings and within fears, and goes on and talks about that. We'll get into chapter 7 here in a couple of weeks. We'll get to that part anyway. Um, and so Paul's desire for us is that our words be available and our heart be open towards anyone who needs what we have to offer. Our heart needs to be open. Our mouth needs to be open. So recall what, turn, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2 real quick. It's just an example of Hannah. Um, if you recall, Hannah was uh, um, the mother of Saul, and she had gone to the, to the temple. Uh, every year she goes with her husband, and she went in and she prayed, Dear Lord, give me a child, and I will, I will give him to you. Well, chapter 2 is her song of, of praise of what God did in that. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, Notice what it says. And it came to pass after this. Am I in the right place? Nope. That was 2 Samuel. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. She was so moved by what God is doing in her life that she had to write a song about it and then sing that song all the time. Her mouth was open. Our mouth needs to be open too because God has moved. Just like she, he moved in Hannah's life and gave Hannah an answer to her prayer, uh, God moves in our life as well and gave us an answer to our salvation prayer uh, and then other prayers as well as we continue to live on. So anyway, um, she was ready to constantly open her mouth and enlarge her message that the Lord is holy. The Lord is a rock. He is a God of knowledge and judgment. If you were to continue reading her, the rest of her song, you will see those, those truths uh, spoken out uh, in, the, in the lyrics of her song. Um, she openly declared more about the living God because she loved God. And that's where she was at. So to open your mouth is truly is a true testimony of your heart for others. Think about that for just a minute. To open your mouth to other people is a true testimony of your heart for those people. 
Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verse 15. Paul says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is in the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. There's a desire to speak in love. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. So what should flow out of your mouth? What kind of things should come out of your mouth? Uh, well, we're not looking at condemnation here right now. We're, we're looking at it really two things. First, speak truth. First thing you should be is speaking truth. And i got three passages for you there. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 7 says, My mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. So Paul's, or, or I'm sorry, Solomon, as he writes that, he says, My mouth shall speak truth, shall intentionally, purposefully speak truth. And Paul, again, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Whereunto I am ordained a minister of the gospel, a teacher of Gentiles in faith and verity. I speak truth, he says, in Christ and lie not. In Ephesians 4.25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So speaking truth is a requirement, really, by, by God, that we, if we're going to open our mouth, we need to open our mouth in truth. So that means you need to know what the Bible says. You need to know what, what the Bible says. So you need to learn the Bible so you can teach the Bible, so you can speak truth about the Bible. But there's a way to speak truth, because sometimes people speak truth very condescendingly or very harshly or very uh, just, I mean, just, okay, you can hit them upside the head with truth. It doesn't change anything for them, though. So there's, there's another way to speak this truth. You need to speak love. Speak love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul writes, I speak not by commandment, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. That's how he speaks. Uh, he speaks. Uh, he speaks a loving message. He's speaking truth, and some of the things that Paul says sometimes they can be they can be very hard on us to hear them, but they're still spoken in truth. And in First Peter chapter three verse ten, Peter writes, "For this, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile." So the the two ideas there. While you're opening your mouth. Refrain from evil and refrain from uh, speaking guile. Those two things are contradictory to both truth and, and love. Now, why, why would Paul want us to speak that way? He says in verse, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, open, open your mouth, Corinthians. Our mouth is enlarged for you. Why? Because in the second half of verse, uh, verse 11, he says, uh, our heart is, to, is enlarged. And it's an interesting description there. The enlargement of his heart towards the, ch towards the church produced his openness of mouth. Because he had such a passion and such a love for the church, he wasn't going to not say anything. Though even though he was now not at, at Corinth anymore, he was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter, and he was dealing with another church, his attention was being focused on planting the church in Ephesus. But he still was writing the church in Corinth saying, Look, I want you to know that my that I love you, that I care about you. My heart is still, my heart hasn't changed for you just because I'm in Ephesus now. That's an incredible thing when you th just thinking about that, which I hadn't really thought about until just now, is that Paul loved the church at Ephesus as much as he loved the church at Corinth, but he did not let his love um, decrease for either church. His his love for this was that's, that's what Christ does, that's what God does, right? You know. You don't get part of God's love 
and then you get part of God's love, and I get part of God's love, and then before you know it, there's no more love left for the world. But God loved the world, and He never He never ceases to love any person, any time. And that's the way Paul was with the church at Corinth and the church at Ephesus. He loved them equally with a passion in his heart, and he was enlarged. He, Paul says his mouth is open because his heart is so large for the church, which means that he has a strong affection for them, and he embraces them in love. So these are deep feelings for the, for the church, very strong feelings that flows out of Paul's mouth from the depth of his heart for them. He loved the church so much that his strong affection for them was expressed in his words. He would speak to them because of his love for them, just demonstrating his love for them. He cannot be silent. He cannot conceal such truth from them. His love gives, and I'll use the word vent. His love gives vent, and I would say that would be a place of of release. A place of release to the language that flows from his heart. He gives vent. His love is vented out in his words to the church. His love is communicated by the love of by the love that comes out of his mouth to the church. That's the vent uh, that comes out. The point here is that Paul loved the church, but then what he's going to do is he's going to contrast his love with whatever evidence that the Judaizers may have. Because the Judaizers, when you you think about the, the, those men that come in behind Paul and try to dis, dissuade the church from anything that Paul had taught them or left them, you think they love the church? I don't think so, because what they're trying to do is take them back to the law. They don't really care about whether they love you or not. They just want you back in the law. That's all they wanted, was to get you back in the law. So Paul is contrasting all of that with, with, those, with those people. And he says in verse 12, to be straightened. You are not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. And so, what, so we need to be straightened. Uh, and there's an issue, that's an interesting word because in Paul's heart um, they could not occupy a narrow or contracted place in his heart instead his heart was full of affection it wasn't a narrow spot he said to the church in Philippians chapter 1 verse 8 for my God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ that's, he, loved, he loved the church as much as Christ loved the church and he wanted to communicate that. So he's talking about being straight now. So we need to remind ourselves that Paul was like the father to this church. He, uh, he related as a father to the child, but he never treated them rigidly or stiff-necked because they were his children. I think I missed a point here someplace. No, I didn't. Okay, so if you look at verse 13, just real quick, he says in verse 13, Not that I, not for now for a recompense in the same. Then he Corinthians, I speak as unto my children. So he's speaking to them as as a, a father to a child. He doesn't mean that he's treating them as a child, but that he loves them as his children. So he speaks to them as their as their father. Another way that Paul would be think about think about the idea of being straightened. What Paul says is what, what he's encouraging us. He's would be that Paul is saying, I am not stiff-necked for you. You know, we use that phrase stiff-necked a lot. You know, some people get, you know, they get their, their nose out of joint or they get, they kind of get their neck stiff and they just, you know, they kind of hold their shoulder back. And, and so Paul's, Paul's not talking about that. That's not the, or that moment, that is the same kind of example. He says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he, or this is when Stephen was preaching before he was killed. 
He says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your father did, so do ye. And Paul is saying, hey, you're still, he says in verse, uh, we'll go back to verse 12, you're not straightened in us, but you're straightened in your own bowels. He says, I'm not what's making you stiff-necked, you are making yourself stiff-necked. So, and Paul wasn't the problem, he wasn't the issue. He had done nothing against the church, nor had he given them a cause for offense. Instead, it was their own will, it was their own heart that was the problem. They were stiff-necked against Paul because they had listened to false teaching uh, and unloving words. So Paul calls them out of their, out of their being straightened in their own heart towards him. He says, "He says you need to straighten yourself up." Now, uh, let's see when um, at the end of verse twelve he says, "You are straightened in your own bowels." That's an interesting word in the Bible, the way the Bible uses the word bowels. Um, I mean, it, it literally in, talks about your intestine, your, your your organs in your in your middle of your section of your body. But bowels is a descriptive word of the seat of emotion, uh, which John himself used to describe one who cares little for another. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, he writes, But whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him. If you shut up your bowels, uh, if you're stiff-necked, how could you possibly love anybody? You can't. You're, you're too rigid, you're too firm, you're too stiff to love anybody. And so Paul says in verse 13, turn your heart. So he says 13, now for a recompense of the same, be you also enlarged. So that enlarged goes back to verse 11 where Paul says our heart is enlarged. Now you need to be enlarged as well. So Paul's counsel is this. Turn around from being stiff-necked. Turn around from having uh, uh, no bowels of compassion. Turn around, be open, be enlarged. The word recompense in verse 13, now for a recompense in the same. He said that the word recompense means to give back in return what you have received. To recompense, give back what you have received, give it back the same way. The love that you have received from me, that love others. That's the kind of love that you should have for others. So not only Paul, but others as well. So Paul is making a case. He's, he's, well, he's not making a case. He's not trying to say, I love you, so you should love me. So don't think that that's what he's saying, because that's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's trying to get the church to represent Christ who, is, who loves unconditionally. So he's not making such a claim that, he, uh, that, he, that, hey, I love you, so you better love me. He's challenging the church. Do you not know how much you're loved? Don't you understand how much love is flowing towards you? Not just from me, but from God Himself as well. Love is being is flowing towards you. So Paul has invested his life in the church. He's clearly motivated by his love for the lost. Following all of this, his love for the for his children, as he referenced the church as being his children. What Paul is wondering as he's writing all of this, I think, is why did the church fail to recognize the love that flowed from him to them? Why did they fail to look to, to understand that? I would say probably because they never saw that level of intensity or love from the Judaizers, so they didn't really understand it. And then Paul, then Paul brings us to a passage that many of us are quite familiar with in verses 15, 14 to 16. 
So he's, he's, he's talking about changing your heart, be open, be, un, um, be enlarged. And in verse 14 says, be ye not unequally yoked. So there's a be doing things, be this, be that, in verses 11 to 13. But in verse 14 he says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Of Belial? Or what part has he with the believer with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so that's a pretty familiar passage. Many of us have turned it up for, for different reasons, I'm sure. So we can consider verses 11 to 13 to be a bridge or a transitional change linking two separate thoughts. So what he's, so verse 11, not, these, not 14 and 16, but 11 to 13 was a bridge. In verses 1 to 10, we had a description of ministry as receiving the grace of God, being approved ministers at the beginning of the, of the gospel of, of, of the chapter, to love, um, to the love that motivated Paul. Now, starting in verse 14, we see the need to separate. So, so Paul said, Bring, come together in love. Come, come together in love. Bring yourself together, verses 1 to 10. And then in verse, verse uh, um, 11 to 13 was a bridge talking about your heart and being enlarged and your mouth being open. So he bridges that. Then he says, so love as, as a ministry, but then also in verse, verses 14 to 16, um, don't be unequally yoked with the wrong people, with the wrong connections. So now he's now he's pointing out. Okay, so if you're going to love, you've got to sometimes uh, recognize that there's people that you shouldn't be partnering with. That's not to not to we'll get to the not you still love those people, but you're not partnering with them. So being unequally yoked, a yoke. I think everybody's familiar with a yoke. It's a coupling device that links two animals together in order to do a work uh, that needs to be accomplished. Paul uses the word yoke as a metaphor for avoiding being joined with an unequal person or an unequal partner. Don't be joined with somebody that's unequal. That's, what, that's, what, that's the metaphor he's bringing out. The yoke is an emblem of several different things. In Leviticus, uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 13, uh, the, uh, the yoke represented slavery. Uh, in Leviticus 26, verse 13, God said he broke the yoke of Egypt on Israel. He broke the yoke, the bondage of slavery. He broke that. Uh, in Lamentations, chapter, chapter 3, verse 27, um, the, the yoke represents a, uh, an affliction uh, or, or the cross, the bearing of the cross. Uh, and in uh, Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 14, we see that the yoke... Uh, is the punishment for sin. Uh, there's also the yoke also represents the c commandments of God. And then there's also, Paul talks about in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, uh, a concern uh, for legal ceremonies. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, let me just, you don't have to turn there, I'll just flip over there real quick. Paul was trying to work with the church after his first missionary journey. Now therefore, why, ye, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither their fathers nor we were able to bear? So uh, they're, trying to, they're trying to bring them back into a, a legal 
And that's exactly what the, the, the Judaizers were doing in Corinth. We're trying to bring people back to the legalism of the Old Testament. So here's some, now you probably already are no problem understanding this, but we should not be yoked with dissimilar pairings. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Like, for example, you shouldn't uh, yoke an ox and an ass together. Um, you know why? Well, they're different animals, but you know what? So what? They both they both carry a burden, but here's the reason why: because they have two different strengths. It'd be like always turning right, because one is stronger than the other. Uh, so, so two different strengths. Uh, don't yoke an unclean and a clean animal. Two different purities. Two different purities. Don't don't yoke a tall animal with a short animal. You wouldn't want to put a chihuahua with the, with the with the, an ox. Is this not going to happen? That's an imbalance of the work. And then uh, any dissimilar pairings uh, would be just consistent, uh, consistent of bringing a problem. But you know what? When you think about something like yoke, God, God sometimes gives you pictures of a negativity of a yoke, um, but he also gives us a positive view of a yoke. Remember what he said, what Jesus Christ said? He, en- he encourages us to take up his yoke. Jesus did. He said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a positive view of a yoke. So that means you do need to yoke yourself sometimes with the right kind of person, the right kind of circumstance, right kind of co-worker, right kind of laborer. There's a right way to yoke yourself. And Paul is telling the church, you are yoked with the wrong people right now. That's the whole point of his passage in verses 14 to 16, is you're, you're yoked with the wrong people right now. Fortunately, they can, they can unyoke themselves by opening their mouth and having a, an enlarged heart. Okay, so anyway, he says, uh, he gives us a, some, some illustrations in verses 15 to 16, um, the appearance of being equally yoked. Um, these verses, 15 and 16, give instruction not just to be yoked, but to be in partnership of ministry. He says in verse 15 and 16, um, what, concord with, what concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he with a believer, with an infidel? And what, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the picture here is, well, actually, Paul asked five questions. Um, so he gives, he gives us a, a picture here of what our partnership should look like by challenging about what your partnership should, should, should not look like. So first he says the questions here, they define what equally yoked looks like. You want to know equally yoked? If you want a question, say, well, how do I equally yoke myself with anybody or with any certain... With, how do I yoke myself with, a, with another church? Let's say you're moving, like David moved. Uh, David needs to yoke himself with a church. and you, I'm sure you're looking for churches. Have you yoked yourself with one yet? Not quite. Okay, so you still are working on the yoking process, finding a church that he can yoke with uh, in his new uh, place of residence. I don't know if they have new churches. Do they have good churches there? I'm just kidding. So anyway, so here's the thing. He said he has five questions. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? So you cannot walk together for very long if one of the team is unrighteous. Um, uh, it, because you, first you've got to be yoked with Christ, 
And then that yoking is that yoking that you've yoked with Christ. Now you yoke that yoke with some. So you're kind of double yoked. Is that a, I don't know if that's a concept or not, but it seems to work right now. So anyway, um, so he says, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And the second question is, what communion hath light with darkness? You know, it's not possible to mix light and dark at the same time. Have you ever tried to, I remember when I was a kid, maybe you did this too, but it's like, flip the light off and jump in bed before the light goes out. You ever tried to do that? It's not possible. You cannot, I don't know why, but you, I mean, I was like, like inches from the bed, you know, flip the light, jump in bed, look up, it's still dark, it's dark already. You cannot mix light and darkness. Apparently nobody ever did that but me. <laughs> so, but the thing is, you cannot mix light and darkness at the same time. It's just not possible. Light and dark is it's not dusk. It's, it's, it's just not possible. Um, the third question he asks is, what concord has Christ with Belial? The word concord comes from the word that we get the word symphony. It's the same word, the Greek word is symphony. And what that means is the word concord is, uh, you know, think about a symphony. You know, you got the instruments, you got the players, you got, don't they have to be in harmony? So the word concord references, uh, can, who, uh, what harmony has Christ with the devil? Well, he doesn't have any harmony, not in unison with the devil. He's, he is so far away from that that there's no way that they could be linked together. And neither should you be have have harmony with somebody who is representative of, of the devil. And then the fourth question he says is, what part does a believer have with an infidel? Now, I mean, we have a lot of people that we like to call infidel, but the idea of an infidel is one who believes with, I'm sorry, without a belief or without faith or confidence. They're basically untrustworthy. That's what that Paul is referring to here is, uh, how can you? How can a believer have, have have be yoked with an infidel when they they have they're not trustworthy? So the question that he's asking here is: there is there anything or any reason you should be yoked with an infidel? The answer is no. And then the last question he challenges the church in is: what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Okay, so we know that the temple of God, you know, was a tabernacle or the tent for several. Uh, generations and then it became a building in Jerusalem as a temple but now where's the temple then our we are the part of the temple right we're a body of Christ he says in 1st Corinthians 6 19 know not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which you have of God and you're not your own so the living God cannot be present with idols as they are false gods and we must never mix our faith with idol worship and uh so that means you've got to be careful about who you yoke this with. So these five questions, they establish a directive to separate from the falseness and the sin of the world. So what does separation look like? What does separation actually look like? So, so you don't yoke yourself, in them, so that means you have to be separated. So in verses 17 to 18, he says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And so he says the very first thing in verse 17, be ye separate. So verse 17 is the essence of biblical separation is this. So there's a, there's, there's a valid reason to be separated from people, to be separated from certain circumstances. The essence of biblical separation is to live for Christ as, as, so as to shine a light in a dark and fallen world. 
sometimes you have to be separate in order for the, the world to see you. You have to be separate in order for the world to see you. So it is, uh, it is to be holy. This separation is to be holy. Is to, uh, he told us not to touch the unclean thing. It is to refuse to follow the world's ways and thinking. It is to avoid being corrupted by the world. That's what we're talking about. So separation, by the way, is a command. If you look at this whole passage we've looked at so far, he says, be ye, be ye not, come out, be ye separate, touch not. Those are commands. Separation is a continual practice as well. It's something that we have to continually do. We have to always be in, in a process of separation. All the phrases are present tense. All of be ye not, come out, be ye separate, touch not. All of them are present tense. They require present effort to remain separate. Another thing about separation is that separation um, is because the believer belongs to God. Verse 16 says, you're the temple of the living God, so we're, we're, but we belong to God, and God's, one, God's going to be separated uh, as, a ten, as his, uh, the temple of God should be separated, so we should be separate. Separation is God's people taking God's side against God's enemies. Separation is, this is the thing about separation, it's not isolation. Separation is not isolation. We're not, we're not going to hunker down in a continent someplace or a, or a, a cult type of behind a bunch of walls type of thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that kind of thing. We're not talking about uh, living like uh, uh, um, Amish or something like that where you're completely separate. That's not what we're talking about. That's, that's why they live that, that way. They've chosen to live that way because that's how they want to isolate. But that's not what Paul's talking about here in this situation. He's not talking about isolation. He's not talking about communalism. Uh, we are to be a light for for Christ in the in this wicked world. Well, if you're not in the world, how can you be a light for Christ in the world? So you can't. So you have to. You're not isolated from the world. You are separate from the world, but you're in the world so that the light of Christ can be shining in the world. Separation is to be different. Think different. Live different. Not following the crowd. And Paul gives us very, we won't take the time to, to dig these out, but they're pretty obvious. Paul gives us three steps to biblical separation. Come out, touch not, be received. That's how God wants to separate us. Come out, touch not, and then be received. And then he says at the end, chapter uh, 6, verse 18, And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So, what is gained by separation? Because, you know, sometimes people think that I'm separating, I'm losing out. Well, here's, here's what Paul says in contrast to that. There are some things that you're going to gain. Paul gives us three ways that we gain by separation. Three things. First, he, in verse 17, he says, we are received. It's in verse 17 at the end, and I will receive you, God says. We gain a father as well. He says in verse 18, and I will be a father unto you. Not just Paul, but God will be a father unto you as well. And the third thing is, is that we are able to hear from God by separate, by being separated from the world. We're actually able to hear from God. Notice that it says the last few words of verse 18. Saith the Lord. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. God speaks. And when God speaks, as we're separated from the world, that means we're drawn towards, towards God. We're, we're yoked with Christ. We're yoked with God through Christ. And when God speaks, we'll hear Him. 
That is a process. That, that is the profit of separation from the, from the world. Uh, we receive. Uh, we are received by God. We gain a father, and we're able to hear from our father when he says, "Thus saith the Lord." And so that's what Paul's trying to communicate to the church. He wants them to understand this very thing. Uh, and uh, and so we're going to continue on our study next week. Uh, well, actually, next week I'm not going to be here. Um, no, am I here? Um, we're not here, uh, so I got somebody else speaking. Um, but uh, we'll get back into it when I get back a couple weeks from now. So let's pray, and then we'll be out. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your Son Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the um, the evidence of of uh, the the uh, the reality of, of being separate from the world. And we just ask, Father, that you would help us always uh, to have our have a, an open mouth and an enlarged heart for the world. That's probably the biggest thing that Paul's taught us. The separation is the ending of the passage. But what's important is the beginning, which says, open your mouth and have an enlarged heart for the world. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to have an enlarged heart, a heart that loves the world in such a way that we will, we will show that love by opening our mouth to declare your Son, Jesus Christ, to them. And we just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for everybody being online. See you later.